to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Hey guys, I think you're really going to enjoy today's podcast from our series on special education. Wendy Dumlau has been an attorney for almost 14 years practicing disability law. She worked for five years as the client's rights advocate in San Diego before opening her own practice. She specializes in advocacy related to regional center services, social security, Medi-Cal, IHSS, and special ed. So she has a lot of great insights to share. Let's get started. Hey, Wendy, it is so good to see you today. and Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is awesome. So, hey, Wendy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into uh, special ed law? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to go kind of way back just to tell you like how this all started, because I mean, how I even got into disability law in the first place. Yeah. So when I was in um, law school, I was working at a group home with developmentally disabled adults. And my my boss at the time had said, oh, you know, I know somebody at protection and advocacy. Would you want to do an internship with them? And now they're known as Disability Rights California. But at that time, it was protection and advocacy. And mm-hmm. um, I almost feel like I was like led there, right? Like I, I started this internship. I passed the bar. They had a position that opened up immediately. I moved like right into the position. I mean, I had to interview for it and stuff, but I got the position. And then that position um, is really what got me started. I The um, disability rights received funding from the state for my position to help regional center clients, which is a, Mm. yeah, which is a state agency in California. It's only in California. And then I did anything that would help a regional center client. So I did Medi-Cal, I did social security, you know, I helped them get regional center services and then I, I did special ed. So that's really like where I started. Um, later I sort of, I transitioned into my, I opened my own office, my own law firm, and I worked a little bit at USD legal clinics and did some work there and learned a little bit more about special ed under Margaret Dalton, who um, she's like my mentor. And um, then I went full time, my own law firm doing all of those areas, special ed and all of that. So yeah, so 14 years later, here I am, right? (laughs) Wow, that is Mm -hmm. so cool. Yeah. Gosh, Wendy, what can you tell a parent to do to ensure that they are an active participant in their child's IEP process? Because we're talking about IEPs today. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, So I have a few pointers, I think. And this is sort of what I do to prepare if I want um, to ensure that my client is is an active participant. Even if I attend an IEP meeting, I still want them to participate. I'm there to help facilitate that. You know, it's my opinion that the IEP process is supposed to be like a collaborative process. And then you have other forums if you don't agree, right? But like the IEP process should be, should start out as a collaborative process. So I try to encourage my my clients to be um, active participants. So some of the things I would say would be, 
um, always requests the IEP documents before the meeting. So the parents can send an email just saying, you know, two or three days before the IEP meeting, can you please send me the draft IEP? If there were assessments done, send me those. I mean, how can you participate if you haven't reviewed all that information? Absolutely. Right? There's there's a lot to go over. Um, I always tell them to make go over it, make a list of questions. The team, the school team is really there to answer those questions. And I'll talk a little bit about what the law says, but um, they should be able to ask questions. They should be able to express their concerns. They should be able to say, I don't like this about the IEP. I want this goal changed. That's, that is really what an active participant would be. Mm-hmm. Really like that, how you uh, are encouraging parents to be self-advocates. Um, what does the law say about uh, parent participation in the IEP process? Yeah, sure. So, so one of the procedural requirements under IDEA, um, which is the law that um, oversees special education, there's other laws, but that's like our big one, right? IDEA. Um, it says that the IEP team must include a parent um, in the meeting, but then they must also consider their concerns throughout that IEP process, which that's like very general. And I know parents are like, well, what does that even mean? Right. right. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot. And, and what I can say is it depends, right? It's fact specific on whether a parent was an active participant or whether the district allowed them to be a participant. Um, but in my opinion, they play a significant role in the development of the IEP. They are vital team members. They know their children the best. Mm -hmm. So their input, their concerns should be considered. Um, I think what the law says or what the case law says is that a parent has meaningfully participated in the development of an IEP when he or she is informed of her child's problems, attends the meeting, expresses her disagreement regarding the IEP team's conclusions of like what they're going to do for that student and then requests revisions of the IEP. But that's only one piece of it. I feel like, like that's just about the IEP process. Um, I can tell you, like, I have an example because I just had a, a hearing and we received the decision. And one of the issues was we were arguing that the school team um, interfered with the parents' participation. Mm. And there were four IEP meetings. The parent was there at every meeting. The parent was represented by a special education consultant. The parent expressed their concerns. But here's where the district made an error. They Every time the parent and the special education consultant asked a question and asked the team to consider a certain placement for this student, they would not answer the question. Wow. So yeah, they refused to answer the questions. This went on for four meetings and you can imagine how frustrating that is, right? Absolutely. Oh, so the judge, the, basically the, the judge said like, yes, you did all these other things, right. But where you failed was you refused to consider the parents' request for this revision to the IEP. You should have explained to them essentially why you did not believe it was appropriate. Really, that's all they had to do was explain why they were making that decision and they refused to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I think ultimately they were refusing to do it because they knew they were wrong and the law didn't support, right, their their decision. But I mean, that's an example where a judge found, yes, you did do all these other pieces that you're supposed to do under the law, but you still failed because you didn't answer their questions. Right. So, you know, really, it's not enough just that you invite the parent to the meeting and they get to express their concerns. It it does go beyond that. And I think the case law is consistent about that. There is more, the district has to do more than just invite them to the meeting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's so good to know. So how can parents determine if the IP goals for their child are appropriate and measurable? Yeah. Um, so we'll deal with measurable first. Um, I, IEP goals should be written in a way that you can actually measure whether someone made progress, right? So it should say how many times the person's going to do that thing or not do that thing. And then there should be a percentage of accuracy that's, um, that's included in that. Um, the way you measure it is you have to have a good baseline, which is like where the student starts from. So um, we can use an example of maybe like decoding spelling words, right? Let's say somebody's in second grade and they um, are having issues with decoding. So we're wanting them to decode a second grade, 10 second grade spelling words. And their baseline is that they can do it with 50% accuracy. The reason that is really important that that be accurate is because how do you measure whether they've made progress unless that's an accurate baseline? Right. Mm-hmm. And then what you're looking for really is, um, I would say, 80 or 90 percent accuracy um, and maybe increasing that list to 50 spelling words. Right. Or 30 second grade spelling words with 80% accuracy, because you're not only increasing the amount of spelling words the person's learning, but you're also increasing their accuracy of how they, how they spell them. So that is, that's what a measurable goal should do. It should have a good baseline to start from, and then it should talk about how often somebody's going to do something or not do something. And there should be an accuracy level included. Yeah, that's great. That's so good to know. Yeah, like sometimes it'll say like, you will spell 10 second grade spelling words. Well, okay, they might already be able to do that. So what are we, yeah. what are we really measuring here, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's why you start with the baseline. That's so good. Yeah. And appropriate, I think, uh, again, it's one of those like terms of art, but it's very general, right? Like how do we know if something's appropriate? So to get a good baseline, they should be pulling data, whether they're doing informal assessments or formal assessments. That's really where you get your baseline from for that student. And then whether it's appropriate means um, are are the way that you've written this goal and the way that you're gonna you're going to implement this goal, is it gonna work for this student? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so individualized. I know so many times that's what we come across is working through what our daughter Abby. Um, what's appropriate to her and what works for her, what supports are needed, all of that. But um, thank you so much for breaking that down. Yeah. And it's hard to really know because like you said, it is so individualized, but I, I really think um, the baselines, which come from the present levels, right. Of the IEP document though, it is so important that those are accurate because really everything else builds off of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the important thing to know. 
So we know like goals are really what drives the IEP process. So as a parent, uh, what do you do if you feel the goals are not appropriate or measurable? Right. Um, I mean, the short answer is consult a lawyer, but some people (laughs) can't do that. Right. Uh, So So really, I mean, there's a lot of publications out there that talk about what goals are measurable. I will say Disability Rights California has a really good manual that they put out called the Special Education Rights and Responsibilities. It's on their website. You go to their publications page. They update it, I want to say maybe every three to five years, probably. So you've got to sort of double check the the law, but the laws don't really change that much around like what's measurable and what's not. Um, they have a really good manual that's parent friendly. So if you want to start there and sort of learn the basics about like what a goal should look like or what's measurable or what's appropriate, I think it's a really good start. And then maybe consulting with an advocate or an attorney or a special education consultant, you know, sometimes it's not too expensive just to get some advice prior to the meeting or, wait and listen and take it all in and then get advice after the meeting because there's no requirement that the parents sign the IEP when the IEP meeting concludes. They can take time to review it um, and get advice if they want to. But but I would say if you don't want to look at the manual, if you don't want to consult an attorney, it really needs to have like a duration and a frequency on how often someone's going to be doing something or learning something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, one of the things I, I think, and we've ran into is not challenging enough because the district then uh, is held accountable to a level that they don't want to be pushed to. So what advice would you have when you kind of have this sense that the district is saying, for lack of a better word, it's dumbing down the goals so they're not held accountable. Right. So I always say 80 and 90% are a good accuracy level, regardless of where you start. You know, the Andrew case that came out said that goals should be challenging. And whenever, and that's a newer case, Rowley was like our first case, right? And that's spelled R-O-W-L-E-Y. That was one of our first Supreme Court cases that talked about what is a free and appropriate public education. When when does somebody make progress that's sufficient? Um, And then we had Andrew come out, which really didn't change the standard. It just sort of added to it. And one of the things that in my opinion, one of the things that came from that decision was that these teams should be making things challenging. And I see that a lot also where they, someone starts at 10% and they go, well, we don't think they can make it to 90%. So we're going to make the end goal after a year, right? We're in school a year. We think if they're at 10%, they could double it, but we'll push it to 30%. Well, that is so low and not challenging. I don't care what the goal is. Um, So a couple suggestions. Sometimes I tell the IEP teams, put it at 90. And if you make it to 50, fine. The parents are not going to be mad. But we want to see that you've tried. We want to see work samples. We want to see a log that you've been working on this. And we get it if they don't get it to 90. But we want the end goal to be 90. We need this to be challenging. And under Andrew, that is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. It, you know, 
the flip side of it, you know, to be fair, is that they don't want to put something they think they can't master because then they're afraid they're going to get sued. Mm -hmm. But really, if we are all collaborating like we're supposed to, the end goal is for this person to make the most progress possible. Mm -hmm. So they should be willing to put themselves out there and say that they're going to try to get it to an 80 or 90%. Well, and if it went to say trial or something, just for the sake of information, is the court looking at progress or actually meeting the goal? So if you're, you know, if they started at 10% and they make it to 50%, but we didn't get to 90, does the court take in consideration at the end of the day, we're looking at progress? So we've got to look in when I'm analyzing a case like, oh, you know, what was the denial of faith? And if it's related to an actual, if it's related to actual progress, I'm looking at what did the district do to get them there? And what were the barriers of why that student couldn't get beyond 50%? If it was really because of their disability, a judge is going to say, this is this is the best that this student could do. It looks like the district did everything they could to get them to this point. And what they should be doing is continuing to work on this goal next year to try to reteach those skills, maybe repetition is necessary, and then get them to a higher level. Ultimately, the district staff, whether it's a speech pathologist, a special ed teacher, whatever, they are considered the experts. So if something's not working, it's their responsibility to call a team meeting, say to the parents, this is not working. Do you have any suggestions? What do you guys do at home? Maybe we'll pull in an outside expert and ask them their opinion. So we can really figure out how the best way to teach this student and what are we doing that's not working, right? I mean, that's really how this process should go and it doesn't go that way. But back to your question, I think the judge is going to look at multiple things. Um, If the district did everything they could and they met with the parents when things weren't working and they tried all these different things, a judge is going to say they fulfilled their obligation under the law and they did not deny faith. It's probably because of the student's disability that they didn't get to 90%. And going forward, you should continue working on this goal, right? That's probably what the outcome will be. Um, And the other piece to this is the parent having their own experts. So what do their experts say? Maybe their experts say the district didn't do it correctly. They used the the incorrect teaching method, right? Like that's possible. And if, if you have an expert that's able to explain that to the judge, then the judge might actually say, no, you you could say all day you did what you could, but this expert saying you use the wrong teaching model. Yeah, mm-hmm. good to know. And I want to highlight too that you had mentioned for parents to know that they do not need to sign the IEP mid meeting or at the end of the meeting. They can wait and take a breath and look at where their child's at, look at what they're um, working with, and then come back and sign it. There's no, it's it does not have to be during that meeting. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's this um, push to get them to sign or make them feel like they're not going to get something. What parents need to understand is once it's offered, it's on the table. So yeah, they could say we're not offering this anymore, but they, they would have a hard time explaining to a judge why they offered this and then took it back. Right. They made this, they had this whole IEP meeting. Maybe they did assessments that school team determined this was necessary. So they offered it in an IEP meeting and then 
two weeks later after the parents were ready to sign, they revoke it. That's going to be an issue. And, and so I think the parents should take their time. If they're really concerned about something, they should take as much time as, as they need. And if the district says to them, well, we can't start speech without you approving this. Oh, well, what's a week or two weeks, you know, of not getting speech when really maybe what they're offering is not appropriate. The other thing that's really important, um, about signing IEPs, parents can sign partial agreement. So they can sign in agreement to the things they agree to and then make a list of the things they don't agree to and then sign the IEP. So it's not an all or nothing. Um, they can sign portions that they agree to. Yeah, that is so, that is such good advice. Not many families know that that is something that sort of hidden and, and unknown to families. And you know what, Wendy, what do you also think of recording the IEP meetings? I think it's really important um, for a couple of reasons. I think it's important in case you don't remember everything that was said. Um, it's important so you can compare it to whatever the notes are that come back from the IEP team and make sure they're accurate. Sometimes they miss stuff that's really important that should be in there. So you're going to want that recording. Um, so what the law says is that you have to give 24 hours notice to the team that you'll be recording. It's an absolute right as long as you give 24 hours notice. And you can do that a couple a couple ways. You can send an email to the case manager saying, I will, this is notice that I'll be recording the IEP meeting on such and such date. Or there's usually a notice of the IEP meeting that comes home that you have to sign and say you're attending and you can write on there, I will be recording this IEP meeting. Um, so do you have any suggestions for how parents can track their child's progress? Yeah, I do. I'll explain like what I do. Um, so if I have somebody that comes to me that says, I think the district just keeps working on the same goals with my, with my child, like they keep writing them a little different, but they're really just working on the same thing. And I don't feel like my child's made progress. I pull all the IEPs. Like I, I usually ask for due process, you can only go two years back, but I want to see what happened prior to that. So sometimes I'll ask for four years worth of IEPs especially because you might get a triennial in there, right? So I try to go back further than that with a records request. And I take them and I track them. So I make like a graph and I put all the goals. So one page will be one goal and I'll put like 2016, 2017, 2018. I write exactly what the goal says. And then before I even start tracking below the progress, I figure out if the goal is is working on the same thing, regardless of how it's written. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be a little complex for parents, but I think, you know, they could probably figure it out or get advice on whether it's the same. Yeah. You're basically just saying, um, you know, look at that goal and every year, is it repeated to some extent or not, you know, right. are you still working on that same goal year after year after year. Right. And then the flip side of that, did they work on a goal? there was no progress and they just threw it out the window and came up with some other goal that has nothing to do with the area that they were working on. Right. Like, Oh shoot, we didn't make any progress. Let's toss this one and put something else in. Yep. And again, I don't know if this is intentional. It may not be, maybe they don't know what to do. Right. I hate to believe that this is all intentional. They might just not know what to do. The school team may not know what to do. Um, 
But it's important to look at it that way too. What happened to that goal? Why did they only make 10% and it's gone? Right. Mm -hmm. If we didn't meet the goal, then yeah, let's try it again. Yeah. I, and so once I lay all that out and figure the, that piece out, then I, underneath that year, I put in all the progress. So there should at least be quarterly progress. Um, and so I, I plug all that in. And then once it's visually in front of me, cause I really need a visual. Once I have that all in there, it takes some time, but once I have it all in there, I can like visually see where this went wrong or if it went wrong, maybe it didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that helps me really understand what happened with the goals and, and what areas, um, what areas did they, did they fail at and, and what needs to be fixed? Could this just be fixed with an IEP meeting saying you guys need to work on this stuff or are we three years down the road still no progress? And now we're like probably at a due process stage because this person has gone through three years without making progress in that specific subject area. Mm -hmm. What can parents do if they believe the services recommended by the school team are not adequate, or maybe if uh, they requested some kind of services and they were denied? Yeah. Um, so services like speech, OT, um, OTs, occupational therapy, uh, physical therapy. Sometimes people have adaptive physical education, APE, some people request vision therapy, right? Music therapy. There's all these related services and related services are really supposed to support the goals. So you have this certain level of service to help support the person being taught these, um, these goals. So if a parent, let's say a parent asked for three individual speech sessions a week, 30 minutes each, right? They probably didn't just pull that out of their hat. They probably were told by somebody that that's what right. their child needed. And a lot of times parents are using their private insurance and paying for these services privately. And sometimes that's where they get these recommendations. So a lot of times I'll say, do you have outside speech? Do you have outside OT? Do you have outside PT? Because if private insurance is covering it, there's not a lot of out-of-pocket. And you can get an opinion usually from these outside experts on what they think might be necessary in the educational system. You do have to break it down and ask it that way because what's necessary in the education setting might be different than what they're getting medically, which is what they're getting outside of the ed system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I always just say, go to your outside speech for your outside OT and ask them. And a lot of them worked in the school system and then went out and started working for a private agency. So they do understand what's required educationally and then what's required medically. Well, and I think too, like if there was something as parents that you wanted, uh, would that come to writing a goal and really pushing the goal, uh, to have services towards that? you know, say, yeah. say a music therapy. I don't think a district's going to just say here, you, you know, you can have music therapy. So I would, I would imagine as parents, you want to come to the table with some goal in mind to spearhead the need for that. Right. And a lot of times music therapy piggybacks with speech. And so, but they've realized that this person learns and is, has more attention to task when music is involved. Like it's like an incentive to some degree. So they will include music therapy. So yeah, they could get a music therapy assessment and bring that to the, to the table, or they could say, I've really 
watched and my son learns with like he's he's encouraged by music and I'd like music therapy to start working on the speech goals as well and maybe pushing into the classroom so let's pull the music therapist in and ask them their suggestion on goals yeah absolutely we see that with our daughter she learns so well with music if you can put it to a song she will learn it what are parents rights if they don't agree with the school district yeah Um, so they have quite a few actually, (laughs) um, you know, I I always encourage, so unless you move around frequently, you're going to be with that school district for a long time. Right. And you'll go from elementary to middle to high school. So you'll have different IEP teams, but you're going to be probably with that team for a while as well. And sometimes there's no getting around it. You just don't agree or there's not a great chemistry there and you're just fighting with the team and it is what it is. But I encourage people to go to the meetings and be candid, be honest about the fact that you don't like this goal or you don't think the speech goal that they're working on is working and you have a suggestion for something different. I think the first step is always to go to the team and try to work it out that way. It is not fun going through a hearing. It's long. It's um, stressful. It costs money. <laughs> like it's all. And, and again, sometimes you can't help it, right? You have, you have to, yeah. but I, my suggestion is to try to work it out with the team. So the first thing to do is go to your team, tell them why you don't agree, maybe bring in an outside perspective to your, your IEP meeting. Parents are allowed to bring whoever they want to their IEP meetings, part of the law. And then if you feel that's that they're not complying with the IEP the way that it's written, you can file a compliance complaint. Um, California Department of Education has like a, a standard form on their website that you can, it's called a uniform complaint, but we call it a compliance complaint. And they have, um, there's a time period for that. Then if it's about a denial of faith, which would mean you don't think the student's getting what they need, Um, or you think that they're not following the law, or you think that they are not listening to you and your input, you can file for due process, which is you file a complaint with the Office of Administrative Hearings, and it actually goes to a hearing in front of a judge. You're going to need experts, which which you have to pay for. You're going to probably need a lawyer. That process is not easy. So there's a lot of evidence that's thrown around the entire hearing and, you know, objections and all these things and people are testifying. So it really isn't something a parent should do on their own unless they're an attorney or they have like a legal background. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are really, I think, um, the, the big three, you can always go to the superintendent and complain if there's something else going on, or you can speak to the special education director in the district if you think that the team is not following the law, but you don't really want to have to go to a hearing. A lot of times the special education director doesn't know that all this stuff is going on below them, right? Because it's sort of like case management stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you go to them, things could get resolved. Mm -hmm. So you talked about a lot of different forms, kind of filling out a process to go through. Can you uh, kind of be specific with what kind of deadlines each of those processes you go through? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're going to do a compliance complaint, which again is really not about, I didn't, it's not about, I don't think this is enough speech or I don't think this goal is measurable. That is not what a compliance complaint is for. Um, You have a year from the time you believe they failed to comply with the IEP 
or when you first realized they failed to comply with the IEP, right? So you can go back a year, basically. Um, and you don't want to, you don't want any of that time to fall off because you might be looking at a year's worth of a remedy, which could be big for that student. So that's a compliance complaint. That is all paper. It goes to California Department of Education. And you're going to want to do, you can use their form, you can do your own, and then you're going to want to submit documentary evidence to like prove that things were not done correctly. Um, so that's the compliance complaint. You also have an option for a due process, which is the hearing that you can, you can go back two years for that. So same timeline. Uh, I mean, same, same issue. It's, it's, uh, when did this happen? Was it, it has to be within that two years or when you realized that it happened. So you, you had knowledge of when this happened. The other thing that's important, this is some recent case law that's come out is that if the district, if their behavior or their actions hid information from you, which affected your timeline on filing, a judge will kick it back further than that. Uh -huh. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. So let's say you were requesting records because you felt like something wasn't right. And you kept requesting and you kept requesting and six months go by. You finally get the records from them, which by the way, they're supposed to provide those records within five, five business days. So if we're at six months, we're, this is a problem. Um, so let's say they fail to provide those records. You're at six months, you know, you're asking for six months you look at everything and you realize they haven't been, they haven't been running the goals. Maybe the student hasn't been getting speech, but now you've lost six months of your remedy. So you can argue they hid this information, their actions basically hid this information and they, and the judge can decide to allow that six months as a remedy. So good to know. Mm. Yeah. You know, the only other, um, there's one more thing I want to mention because I think it's important if a parent or a student believes they've been discriminated against, there is a complaint called, it's like a civil rights complaint, um, retaliation or discrimination, and you file it with the Office of Civil Rights, and that goes back 180 days. And again, the same thing, 180 days, you have to file it from when you knew that something happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Wendy, thank you so much for all of this information, because, um, it just helps parents to know what their rights are, what recourse there is, you know, as they're going through the IEP process. And so often as parents, we're not educated. We don't, we don't know what our rights are. We don't mm -hmm. know what we're supposed to do. And all of these terminologies are coming at us and we, we are just overwhelmed. So this is so valuable. You know, one thing we love to do at the end of every podcast is ask this question, which is what's one thing you would share with our listeners to help encourage them and to bring hope for the road ahead. Yeah. Um, I think I said this earlier, but I will say it again. I really encourage families to try to work with their IEP teams. I will tell you if I'm at an IEP meeting, which is it's rare, but if I'm at it, it's because I feel like there's a way to resolve this through the IEP process. Either I think the team is great. And, you know, through the years, 14 years of doing this, I've had some really wonderful IEP teams that I've worked with. They really cared about the student. They really wanted to help. It's usually decisions being made above them 
that cause the rift. It's not usually the team. And listen, there are, have been some horrible IEP teams that I've worked with also, but I think to provide some hope for them is to tell them that there have been teams that I've worked with who've been really great. And they were welcoming to me, even though I'm an attorney and that's got to be scary, right? They were very welcoming and open to um, input. I, so I would encourage that. I think ultimately, sometimes you just disagree. And this is why we have the due process process is because sometimes a judge just needs to decide. So, you know, be as cordial as possible, even if the school district is not being, because there is somebody else who can, who's going to look at this and will make the decision. And honestly, sometimes parents just want a decision, whether it's a yes or a no, they don't trust the district for whatever reason. And they want some outside person to tell them whether their child is entitled to this or not. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. why we had you on the show. <laughs> yeah. On the podcast. I think it's so, you know, I think it's so important for parents to understand their basic rights related to special education. I you how can you be a vital part of the team if you don't even know what you're allowed to do or what you're allowed what information you're allowed to have or what your child's rights are. So I I will always do these with you guys or do presentations because I think it's really important for parents to have this information. Love mm. it. That is so great. We we so value you, Wendy. This has been amazing. And I think that this is going to be just such a great resource for families going into the IEP process this year and into the future. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, you guys. It was so nice to see you again. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.